Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. We hope that this message will challenge you and encourage you on your journey of faith. If you would like to learn more about Journey Church, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at thejourneychurch.cc. Now enjoy the message. Father, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. We thank you for everything that you're doing in the service right now, Father, everything that you're going to continue to do. Father, we thank you for speaking to us, God. We thank you for moving in our hearts, God, for answering the questions we need answered tonight, Lord. Father, I thank you, God. I thank you that you care about each of us deeply, Lord, and that you love us unconditionally. So, Father, I pray right now that every person who is in this building right now, God, every person who is watching online via Facebook or YouTube or the website, Lord, that right now our hearts are fully open and receptive and we are ready to receive the word that you have for us tonight. God, you are so good. We thank you. We love you. And we worship you. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the house. You may be seated if you're standing in your living room right now. There's nothing wrong with standing up in your living room and worshiping. Amen, church. So you can go ahead and have a seat in your living room if you want to, unless you're just ready for the message and you want to stand and that's fine too, right? So we kicked off a series last week called The Search. And what we've been looking at in the series, what we began to look at last week, is this reality, the truth, the fact that every single one of us, every single one of us has been searching or is on a search for significance in our life. We're all looking to find value and worth, and we're looking to find value and worth in many things. For some of us, We're searching to find our value, our significance, and how hard we work. How many hard workers we have in the room? Amen. Let me see your hands. Come on, somebody. All right? So we have some hard workers. We we, we work hard, not just to get the job done, but we're working hard thinking that somehow the harder I work, the more valuable of a human being I am. Right? For some of us, we might be trying to identify our significance, find our significance, our value, and the types of relationships that we have. We pride ourselves in having great relationships. You see, I'm going to be the friend that's going to be the friend that's going to be the friend, right? I'm going to be the person that you can call no matter what. But we often, in times, find ourselves being lonely at the end of the day because we find that sometimes the friends that we are are not the friends that we have, Right? So we search for our, our value and our worth, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in relationships. And for others of us, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we, we search for our value in always being right. Is there anybody in the room that likes to be right? Anybody? Anybody like, come on, y'all, look, you know you like to be right because you know the person you like to listen to the most and the person you agree with the most is yourself, amen? Come on. And so we, we have that as well. We, we think that uh, I found my value, my worth, and always being right. And then for others of us, for others of us, thank you. They brought me water. They said, man, please drink that. So for others of us, we find or we don't think we have value, right? Because people like us don't deserve value. We, we don't deserve much. All right, here we go. And so last week we learned uh, that these avenues that we, we search on are not places where we find our significance. 
And the reason that these are not the places we find our significance is because our significance is not found in what we do or who we are. Our significance is found in who God has deemed us to be. Our value has been predetermined from the very beginning, right? Our value has been predetermined from the very beginning. You cannot devalue me because my value has been set by the divine creator, God. You can call me names. You can spit on me. You can stomp on me. You can get me wet. We talked about that $20 bill last week, right? If we have a $20 bill right here, everybody in the room wants a $20 bill, amen, right? Maybe some quarters, nickels, or dimes because we have a coin shortage apparently, right? But, but if you had a $20, everybody would want the $20 bill. And if I balled the $20 bill up, would you still want the $20 bill? The answer to that question is what, church? Come on, we're in church. What? Yes, right? And if, if you stomp on the $20 bill, would you still want the $20 bill? Yeah. If it was a little dirty, would you still want it? If somebody drew really funny pictures all over the $20 bill, would you still want the $20 bill? Why? Because it's, it's still $20. It doesn't matter how crumpled up it is, how wet it is, how damaged it is, how drawn on it is, right? It's still deemed valuable because its value has been determined by the mints and not by you. Right? So that $20 bill will spend just about anywhere. And so our value's been deemed, we've been deemed valuable from the very beginning. And we looked at the very beginning uh, in Adam and Eve, right? We <clears throat> saw Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We'll recap real quick, and, uh, and I'll make sure to, to get this going. All right, it says this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, and then God said, let us, who did he say? Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And it says, and they will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals of the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. In verse 27, it says, and so God created human beings in his own what church? In his own image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God created Adam. And then he created second class Eve. No, that's not what it said, is it? Isn't that funny? All we had to do is go back to the very first book of the Bible, and we can see that God deemed both man and woman equally valuable. And somehow we missed it. Somehow we got it wrong. Somehow we thought that they can't vote and they're pieces of property and all sorts of things. But, but God said, no, no, they've been deemed valuable equally from the very beginning. So so, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then you go down to verse 31, and I love this. This is so good. In verse 31, it says, And then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very what, church? He saw that it was very good. He didn't say it was subpar. He didn't say it was average. He said he looked over all of creation, including his prized possession, the crown of his creation, Adam and Eve. And he said to them, you are very good. And that, that phrase, very good, it, it's, the, it, it's the Hebrew word tova, right? And, and it means good in the widest sense. It means good in the widest sense. In other words, you're not going to come to the end of its goodness, it's good in the widest sense. Look what else it says. it says. It says it's beautiful. It's the best, right? It's precious. It's well-favored. So God looked over all of his creation, Adam and Eve, and he said of Adam and Eve, you are tova. You are the best in its widest sense. And so even though Adam and Eve were created with such value, they still stumbled. 
And we saw that, right? Because like, oftentimes we read stories. You ever find yourself reading a story in the Bible thinking that you're better than the person you're reading about? We all do it, right? Like we all look at it and we read it and we go, I would never have made that same mistake. You know, we look at Adam and Eve and we say that, right? We look at Adam and Eve, well, I would have never let her eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And, and Eve, they, we say of evil, if I was Eve, I would have made Adam use his big boy words. Because apparently Adam didn't know how to use his big boy words, right? Because when she went and grabbed the fruit and she pulled it down, she ate it and she took a bite. She said, it says, and she turned and she gave to him, which means he was right there watching her climb up the tree. He was too distracted. Okay. So, <laughs> true story. And so we found out that, that, that Adam and Eve, they represent humanity. That's not, it, it is the decision that humanity would make over and over and over again. They fall for the same lie that we fall for even today. And it is echoed by Professor Brene Brown. I don't know if you've ever listened to Brene Brown, man. Find her YouTube stuff. She talks about transparency and vulnerability. It's phenomenal. But this is what she says. The lie that we tell ourselves or the meditation that's on repeat in our heart is this. We are not enough. That is the meditation on repeat in our lives. That we are not enough. Humanity declares that we are not enough. And so we run and we search for God. We search for God. We search for value and worth. For value and worth. And, and God from the very beginning has been searching for us. You never found God. Can I just say, say I found God. No, you didn't. God found you. You just happened to turn around and realize one day that he was there. That's the way our God works. That, that song we were singing uh, a little while ago, oh, man, it just it hit me during worship. I was like, man, we're not, ca we're not catching this. And at the bridge of that, because you're perfect in all of your ways. Yeah, yes, Lord, you're perfect in all your ways. You're holy. You're perfect. There's nothing wrong with you. You're perfect in all of your ways. You're perfect in all of your ways to us. Yes, he's perfect. But he's perfect in his love to us. Never an off day with God's love for you. Never an off day. There's never going to be a day where, where, where God's off and you've just behaved just a little too bad and he stops loving you. He's perfect in his love towards you every time, all the time. Come on. And we have that script going in our heads. We're not enough. We're not enough. We're not enough. We're running from God. God's running after us. And he's declaring every chance he gets. Hey, listen, listen, Tovah. Hey, hey, Tova, Tova, God, I, I really messed this up. I really did this or I did that. Or, no, 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 Tova, you're the best in the widest sense. And I'm not speaking to arrogance. I'm not, hopefully you're not walking away with that, that in this moment that, that, well, the pastor wants us to be arrogant. No, 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 no. The pastor doesn't want you to be arrogant. The pastor wants you to have confidence. Come on, somebody. Right? <clears throat> He's declaring tova over us. The proof that God delights in us. The proof that God is, is esteemed as valuable is found in, in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. I want you to read this, and I want to show you this. Uh, Romans 38 and 39, it says, And for I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, 
neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for the day nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love that a love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me. It is not about how much you love God. It's all about how much God loves you. Stop it. I got to love God more. No, 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 no. You need to be loved by God more. And when you're loved by God more, the default, the byproduct is that you love God more. Right? The proof is in the pudding. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And the last part is so good. Revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How much does God love me? The proof is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He died. He loved you to his death. Come on, church. He loved you to his death. Right? Listen, that should show you how valuable you are because you don't die for worthless things. You don't go to war for worthless things. Amen. You only go to war. You only lay down your life for things that you've esteemed valuable. Some of us have esteemed things valuable that we shouldn't esteem things valuable for because we're going to war on social media like crazy. But but the reality is, is that you only go to war for things. You only die for things. You only fight for things that you deem valuable. And Christ said, I'm going to love the world, humanity to my death because he is perfect in all of his ways to us. Proof is in the pudding. You don't die for worthless stuff. So a reminder in this series that we're focusing on three things. Number one, identify and understand the nature of man's search for significance. We did a great job on that last week, if I do say so myself. Right? It was a great message. Oh, that was, that was okay. All right, so, so go back and watch the message. It was, it's all there. So identify and understand the nature of man's search for significance. The second thing that we're looking at is recognizing the challenge and challenging inadequate answers to that. And the third thing is applying God's solution to our search for significance. So let's talk about two and three over the next couple of weeks. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the garden, the moment that their eyes were opened, they saw themselves through their own eyes of judgment. There was nobody else around. And so who deemed themselves unworthy in that moment was not the creator who made them, but themselves. And can I tell you the same thing is true right now. The one who deems you unvaluable, the most in your life, is yourself. And there are these fears that are awakened in Adam and Eve in the the garden. Uh, These four different fears. And we all, at some level, we all struggle. We all deal deal with these fears. The the first one would be the fear of shame. Y'all say shame. Come on. Right? The fear of failure. Do me a favor, say failure. Failure. Right? The fear of punishment. Punishment, you got it. And the fear of rejection. Yeah, yeah, rejection. So, So the fear of shame comes out. It says, and their eyes were opened and they were ashamed because they were what, church? No, come on, church. They were what? I need y'all to say that because I don't apparently say that word right. So they were naked, right? They were naked. And then the fear of failure comes out when they, when they, it goes like this. It says, and they sewed fig leaves together to hide themselves, right? That's the fear of failure. See, see, that's what happens in the fear of failure. We're going to get to that tonight, but that's what happens in the fear of failure. And when the fear of failure happens, when we fail in our lives, and that's our fear, that's our motivation, we cover stuff up because we can't be exposed. At least someone realize we're not perfect. 
And then there's the fear of punishment. They heard the Lord calling to them in the cool of the day, and so they ran in what church? They hid in the bushes. Just like when you were younger, and you did something wrong, and your mom called you by all three of your names. You what? <laughs> ran and hid. Maybe you had a really different experience than I did, but that was the cue to go. And then the last one, the fear of rejection. The fear of rejection, he goes and he asked them, he said, who who told you you were were naked? Who told you you were naked? Right? Who, Who told you? It wasn't that it was wrong to be naked, church. We know that. It wasn't that it was wrong to be naked. It was, it was the fact that they deemed themselves right to be wrong they deemed of themselves to be naked right so i hear drums anybody else hear drums right now it's thunder amen even the clouds are celebrating all right here we go so all right so these fears perpetuated one generation to the next without any of us really understanding or being consciously aware of it each of us we we struggle with all these things to a varying degree have you noticed it can you find it in your life do you know which fear you struggle with just by listening to it is it the fear of shame the fear of punishment right the fear of rejection right or or the fear of failure When the script in our lives is this, I am not enough, the formula that we begin to live by is this. Listen, my performance plus others' opinions equals my worth. When I am convinced that I am not enough, the the formula I live by is my performance plus others' opinions equals my my worth. And this is a formula that is taught to us even today, even as we're younger, right? It's all about your performance plus others' opinions equal your worth. I mean, think about it. Everything is leveraged that way, right? You do schoolwork, your performance plus what your teacher thinks about you equals, equals the next grade, right? I mean, your job's the same way. Your job is your performance plus what your supervisor think about you equals your raise or your, 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 your promotion or whatever it is. I mean, think about it. That's how that system works in our, in our world, isn't it? When was the last time that you went to work and your boss says, man, listen, you interviewed horribly. You failed the, 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 the business acumen test, but you know what? We're just going to give you the raise anyways. Does it happen, church? No. So, so that, that, that formula that we live by is my performance plus others' opinions equals my, my worth. The destructive force of sin... And let me just say this. Yes, sin is destructive. You see, here's the thing. When you, when you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and you preach it the right way, people will say to you, well, you're soft on sin. You don't talk about sin very much. You're, 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 you preach too much on grace, right? Oh, so you're saying since, that since we're under grace, we should just go ahead and keep on sinning. We can live however we want to. If you're preaching the gospel right, you're going to get those questions. Paul got those questions and addressed them over and over again. But the destructive force of sin, and again, yes, it's destructive, is seen more in in the fact that it drives us away from God. Hear me. Your sin and my sin does not drive God away from us. Hear me. It drives us away from God. Now, here's here's the thing. Can you really go anywhere that God's not? No, you're not going to go anywhere that God's not. So think about that. But what it does do is it it condemns your, your heart condemns you. And the Bible says that we have confidence, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God, right? So sin, it, it drives us 
away from God. And we have this idea that when we sin, that, that God abandons us, that God leaves us, that God is separated from us, that God breaks fellowship with us. And, and we even have these horrible things that we, we, we co-sign in church that says, well, you know, God's too holy to even look upon sin. That is a smack in the face to the gospel. God is too holy to look upon sin is a misinterpretation of a half of a verse in the Old Testament. If God is too holy to look upon sin, how in the world did Jesus become known as a glutton and a drunk and a friend to sinners? Is Jesus not God, church? He's God. Amen. And so if God can't be in the presence of sin, then someone should have told Jesus that. Because Jesus hung out with people who sin. Right? People hung out with people who sin. You see, it's to, to, to say of, of our God that, that God can't be in the presence of sin. And we often use that when we talk about the cross. I'm not going to get into that tonight. But, but when we say that God can't be in the presence of sin, how does a Savior save sinners if he's not there with them to save them? Come on. God, Jesus is called Emmanuel. God is Come on. God is with us. Right? God is with us. It's like to say God can't look upon sin. God's too holy. He can't look upon sin. That's like, that's like a lifeguard trying to save someone's life without going into the water, without coming off the stand. Right? Sin, it, 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 it drives us away from God. In other words, it hardens our hearts. It, it hardens our hearts to God. Sin doesn't break God's fellowship with us. It breaks our fellowship with God. And do you know what the ideal thing for Adam and Eve to do would have been to do what, church, when they missed the mark? It would have been to when they heard God calling them, when they heard Abba calling them, Adam and Eve, where are you? When they heard that, the best thing for them to do would be to turn around right where they're at and walk right to God and say to God, you already know. Why is it that we have such a hard time talking to God about when we miss it in our lives? He already knows. He's perfect in all of his ways to us. If, if we're fearful about going to God about an area in our lives that we're missing it in, it's because, like the Bible says in 1 John, that, that, that love has not been made perfect in you. Why? Because perfect love casts out what? All fear. You're tracking with me, church. And so the best thing for Adam and Eve to do in that moment would have been to come out and say, God, we missed it. We're sorry. Help us. Instead, it took milliseconds for the script to be written, my performance plus others' opinions equals my worth. And then God spends the next 10,000 plus years, I'm not debating time, 10,000 plus years chasing humanity down with a plan of redemption named Jesus. It's not that God is oblivious to the problems that we deal with in humanity. It's not even oblivious that, that God's not oblivious to the fears that we deal with, right? Because we know that our Savior became flesh. The, the Word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And, and the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, yet he did not what church? Sin. Did you know that Jesus was tempted with the very same fears that Adam and Eve faced and the very same fears that we face today? He was tempted as well. Turn this bread into stone. Jesus, if you're really the Messiah and you don't want to fail, here's your chance right now. Turn this bread to stone because you know you're going to be in this desert for a while and you know you're probably going to die. Wouldn't it be just easier just to eat that right then? That failure comes in. Throw yourself off this temple and the angels will, will catch you, right? That, after all, that's what God said, unless you're worried about being punished. 
Maybe you're worried about being punished. Or, or bow down, he tells them as he shows them the kingdoms of the world. Bow down and worship me and all these kingdoms will be yours. Surely, Jesus, this is a lot easier route than the one you're going to take, right? I mean, you don't want to really be rejected, do you? It would be a shame, right, to die a criminal's death. Think about this. So we know we have four primary fears that everyone deals with, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of punishment, the fear of shame. But over the next few moments, not just a few moments, I want to unpack the fear of failure. The fear of failure says this. If you're a note taker, you want to write this down, take a picture of the screen, go back and watch the message. It says the fear of failure says I must meet certain standards in order to feel good about myself. I must meet certain standards in order to feel good about myself. Now, how many of you know that standards are not a bad thing? Amen? Standards are a great thing. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. So standards are there, right? And actually, as the body of Christ, we're called to live by one of the most important standards there is, the standard of love. So standards are a good thing. But if I'm loving, if I'm loving in order to meet standards, in order to feel good about myself. If I'm, if I'm loving to feel better about my life, then I'm missing it. Then I'm using this opportunity to derive some type of value and worth. We, we look at this by, by meeting standards. Those standards, when we, when we begin to serve them, when we begin to live by standards in order to derive value and worth, they become our source. And when they become our source for our worth, the script that we rehearse over and over and over again is this one. It's, it is, I am what I do. See, a person who struggles with the fear of failure is someone who believes that they are what they do. But can I just let you in on a little secret? It's a really good one, right? Um, you are not what you do. You are who God has deemed you to be. You are who God has created you to be. You are not what you do. It's like when you deal with your kids, you know, your kids. How many of you love your kids six months into the pandemic? Come on, somebody. We love our kids. But you know, when your kids act up and they disobey you or they disrespect you, they're not bad kids. They may just be making bad what? Choices. You would never, you should never Look at your child anytime they're messing up and say, you are a bad child. You are a bad child. You are a bad child. Because what we're doing is we're teaching them, I am what I do. You are acting badly. You are not a bad child. You are making bad choices. You are deemed valuable by God. You are tova. Acting stupid. You are tova but making bad choices. To declare that you are what you do would be to say the opposite of what God has declared about you. And in God's economy, you are not a failure. You will have moments of failure. Come on, we have moments of failure. I have moments of failure. Like I said, that's why we won't have Journey Church bumper stickers or magnets for our cars. Because I'm well aware of my failures. We have moments of failures, but that's not who we 
are. Do you know this was a radical shift? A few more moments. This was a radical shift for first century culture because first century culture, Eastern culture, uh, uh, was, was, was a culture of, of shame and honor or honor and shame. It's their culture, and even a lot of Eastern cultures today, honor and shame is the culture that this. This Bible was written in a culture that was honor and shame oriented. And so when the, the statements of the gospel were being made, it challenged a lot of first century beliefs. Because in honor and shame culture, if you do something wrong, you bring shame upon the family. The family is now the very act that you've done wrong. And so in order to make this right, you have to go do something. You have to go avenge something. Think about every great martial arts flick you've ever watched, every kung fu movie that you've ever watched. Eastern cultures are very high on honor, right? And, and, and what was so, you've read the scripture in, in Galatians chapter 3 when Paul, uh, uh, he, he speaks it out. Where am I at in my notes? Lord, where is this at? It's in here somewhere. There it is, Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. Paul makes this statement, but I don't think many of us recognize how radical of a statement it is. You see, we, we, we're over here in, in our country. We have a very, very individualistic mindset, very individualistic. That can be unhealthy, too. Amen. Because then we only care about ourselves and nobody else. But the other extreme over here is that is that you ruin it for everybody else. That's not where you want to be at either. So Paul's statement in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 was challenging because this is what he said. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all what? One in Christ. Your value is attached to your Savior. He may act badly, but that doesn't mean now you all are bad. Does that make sense? So, those who struggle with the fear of failure, that is, I must meet certain standards in order to feel good about myself, we, we often express it in two ways. When I say we, because I am one. I am one of those people who struggles with the fear of failure. And, and you will see the fear of failure expressed in, in two primary ways, right? Um, one is inactivity or inactive. Inactive. In other words, uh, some people would look at somebody who's inactive and we would say of them that they're what? Lazy. We're lazy. That person, we, we know somebody. All of us are six degrees separated from somebody who still lives at their home and with their parents in the basement at 45 years old. Right? We all know somebody like that. It's okay. And some people might look at that person and say, well, they're just being lazy. Or they might just have a great family and never want to leave. That's okay. We might look at somebody who doesn't hold a job very long. Well, they're, they're lazy. They don't really want to work hard. That, we, we make all these judgments, but the reality is it could be, it could be that they're lazy. Or it really could be that they struggle with a fear of failure. Because this is what they say of themselves. I can't afford to exert any real effort in this, least I fail. Because if I fail, then I am what I do, and I'm a failure. And so I'll keep it and play it safe. I only do the very minimum right i only do what i know i can excel at and then you have the other side of that the other side of the continuum is someone who is a who's a workaholic or a perfectionist we look at sometimes we glamorize people who work 50 60 70 80 hours a week and we look at them and go man they they just love their company they just love their job and it might be true they may just love their company that much or it could be they'd struggle with the fear of failure 
And what they say is, I can't afford not to exert every bit of information, every bit of energy I have into it. Because if I, if I don't exert every bit of energy into this and I fail, then I am what I do and therefore I am a failure, right? Do you see it, church? One is inactive, one is overactive, right? And they all stem from that same thing. I must meet certain standards to feel good about myself. Our fears, our fears also, they shape our view of God. Did you know that? Your fears shape your view of God. If I fear failure and I refuse to act, then my view of God will be one of a God who is distant and far from me. Right? If I'm overactive, if I'm, a, if I'm a workaholic, if I'm a perfectionist, then a lot of times we will see God as judgmental or constantly judging our performance to perfection. You want to know how to check and see if you're a person that struggles with fear of failure? First of all, if you're a person that struggles with fear of failure, you already know it. And so does your family. And they hate it. But here's a heart check. Do I love myself only when I perform good enough? You want to have a heart check if you struggle with the fear of failure? Ask yourself, do I only love myself when I do good enough? And often we'll come back and recognize that, that really the standards that we're trying to meet are not external uh, standards imposed on us really by others. The ones that we struggle with the most are internal standards imposed on us by ourselves. Right? Uh, go over to Luke chapter 10 real quick, and I'm going to speed through. So I'm going to do a little storytelling so we can wrap up. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. You have two ladies who have the privilege of having Jesus in, in their house. Um, now, I don't know about you, but are, do you know anybody who is the type of person who, when they have company come over, they clean the house almost spotless, and when the person walks in the door, they still say, they still say, excuse the mess. If you walk into a house that's spotless, and the person who, walk, who lets you in says, excuse the mess, that person has the fear of failure they're operating in. You know anybody like that? Why are you pointing at me? That's true. Have you, do, do you know do you, ever, you know somebody who, when they have guests over, they don't do anything? They don't clean the dishes. They don't clean the plates. They don't do nothing. They eat dinner, and they leave everything right there on the table, like right there. Dishes piling up everywhere. You can't even see your guests. Anybody, do you know somebody like that? Then you relate to the story, right? Because this is exactly what happens in the story, right? The story is of me and my wife. It's in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 and 40 through 42. It says, and as Jesus and his disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha, y'all say Martha. Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister, her sister Mary, say Mary, sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. And she came to Jesus and she said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I work or while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. Amen. Verse 41 says, but the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. 
There is only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. I just got to give credit to Martha. Where Give credit where credit is due, right? Amen? This is a bigger deal. You don't even realize how big of a deal this story is right here, right? It says, whose house did Jesus go to? It was whose house? Come on, church. It was whose house? It was Martha's house. It was Martha's house. Did you notice it didn't say Martha's husband's house? It said Martha's house. Here it is. Martha is a hard worker welcoming Jesus into her spotless house because it is spotless. And she said to Jesus on the way in, excuse the mess. And she went in there and she had been working on this meal that she's getting ready to serve Jesus in her house in a time where women didn't own property, but instead were viewed as property. This is this is this is good. And so Martha, I, I, I got to give credit where credit's due. It's Martha's house. It's Martha. But Martha shows the telltale, the telltale signs of someone who deals with the fear of failure. Jesus is in your house, but all you're doing is focusing on cleaning and cooking and serving. Nothing wrong with all those things. Amen. Those are good things to do. But you got to know the time to do it. Right? Verse 40, she becomes critical of two people. This is how, this is how people who struggle with the fear of failure do it. Everybody else is wrong. That is exactly right. Everybody else is wrong. So, so Martha is cooking in her kitchen, and she's got all the foods like they're on the stove and, and on, the, on the granite countertops. And there's this cutaway in her kitchen where she can see right into the living room where they're doing the Bible study lesson that she's not a part of because she's too busy cooking food for everybody else who's lazy. Amen. And she gets frustrated with this, and she leaves the kitchen, and she walks up to Jesus, and she says to Jesus, excuse me, I'm in there slaving away, I'm cooking, I'm doing, I've done all the cleaning, Martha, or Mary didn't do anything, she didn't even vacuum, she didn't vacuum at all, as a matter of fact, I had to pick her plate up from last night that she left sitting on the, the coffee table, right, and, and, and so don't you, don't you see an issue with her? Tell her to get up and come my way. So, so Martha becomes critical of two people. She becomes critical of Jesus and critical of others. Man, I'm telling you, a person who struggles with fear of failure, when I see somebody else enjoying life, somebody else just enjoying Jesus, and I'm over here doing all the hard work, I get critical of God too. I'm just putting myself out there. Some of y'all might not want to come back next week. That's okay. I'm just putting myself out. I get critical. I go, God, Really? Really? That's what she did. She became critical of Jesus. She became critical of, of Mary. She struggles with that. I must meet certain standards in order to feel good about myself. And, and when we do that, we'll always judge the, listen, listen, we'll always judge the actions in the moment instead of the heart of the moment. That's good. Y'all should have wrote that down. I'll say it again, give you a chance. We always judge the actions in the moment instead of the heart of the moment. And we have to be careful. I have to be careful. Because here Martha is, she's hiding behind her fig leaves when the one who can bring her peace is sitting in her house. Think about this. Martha, like me, we have no problem hosting peace and entertaining stress. I want you to get that. She is hosting peace 
but she's entertaining stress. I, I wonder how many of us allow that script to be written in our lives where we're doing all we can for God, but, we're, but the peace that that's supposed to bring is out of reach. And so we are hosting peace, but we're entertaining stress. Verse 41 and 42, when he goes, she goes, and questions, and he responds to her, my dear Martha, you were worried and upset over these details. I, I want you to highlight two words real quick. Five more minutes. I'm going to highlight two words. He said, you're, he said, you're worried and you're upset over all these details. Now, the, the word worry right there is mahanamo, I think. And it means, it means to be anxious. It's a Greek word. It means to be anxious, listen, and to seek to promote one's interests. You are worried. It means to be anxious or to seek and promote one's interest. Uh, the word upset is tharabazo. And that word, the word upset, means to be troubled in mind. To be troubled in your mind. And so when Jesus, he, he, he gently corrects her, he says to her, my dear Martha. How many of you know that, that shows care, right? That shows care. My, my dear Martha, he said, you are seeking to promote your own agenda, and it's causing your mind to be troubled. That's really good. You're, you're seeking to promote your own agenda, and it's causing your mind to be troubled. And yet the solution to her trouble is sitting in her living room. And the best place for her to be is not in the kitchen making the food. She needs to know the moment. The best place for her to be is at the feet of Jesus Christ right there. He, Jesus points to Mary and shows, shows Martha and what she is doing is the right thing. What she is doing won't be taken away from her. It was grace in that moment justifying Mary's actions. And what was Mary's, listen to me, what was Mary's actions? To rest. To rest. He justified her. She didn't do anything to be justified. She, he justified her. And that's the solution to the fear of failure. The fear of failure is found in justification. It's found in God justifying you, right? In Romans 3, 23 and 24, it says, For all sin, we know that, and fall short of God's glory. But at verse 24, it says, But being justified freely by his grace. Who did the justifying? Come on, who did the justifying, church? Yeah, God did, right? God did the justifying, and he did it freely through the redemption of Jesus Christ. The word justified is a simple word. It means just as if I had never what? Sinned. Just as if I had never sinned. The solution to the fear of failure is found in being justified by God. You see, if I've been justified freely, apart from my ability, then I have no standard to meet. My standard has been met. And that's where my, my value and worth comes from. If I succeed, I am just as if I've never sinned. And if I fail miserably, which we all do at least once a week, right? Anybody in the room want to be honest? We fail miserably at least once a week, maybe. Maybe you can get two weeks out of that, right? But regardless on, on those times, even if you fail miserably, listen, you've been justified. You've been set just as if you had never sinned. 
and this is a scary and yet beautiful place to the person who struggles with the fear of failure, when they encounter grace, because we recognize this, it's not about how hard I can hold on, but how quick I can let go. Grace says this. Grace says this. Here's a solution. Grace says, because you are completely and totally accepted by God, you desire to do the right thing. Did you know that your nature and who you are, listen, desires to do the right thing? Well, what about the flesh? I thought the flesh wrestles with the, the spirit and they, they wrestle back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But who you are desires to do the right thing. When we buy into the lie of my performance plus other people's opinions equals my, my worth, when we buy into that lie, we begin to believe in a false self. And when we embrace a false self, that false mind argues and fights with who we really are. And so therefore, yes, you will go off and sin, but you, you ever realize it's hard to sin when you feel completely righteous and perfect, right? Right? I mean, it's hard to sin when you feel righteous. Grace says, because you are completely, completely and totally accepted by God, you desire to do the right thing. I'm going to leave, leave you with two verses right here. Romans 6, 14, just so you don't think I'm making it up. It says, sin is no longer your master, for you, are no longer, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law, the standards. Do good, get good, do bad, get bad. But instead, you live under the freedom of God's what? There it is. Romans 3, 23 and 24, for everyone has sinned and we fall short of the glorious standard. Yet God, yet God. How many times do you say that? I say that quite often. I say, but God. This wasn't supposed to be this, but God. But God. In his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. And he did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of of our sins freed you know that's past tense did you know that? when he freed us from the penalty of our sins you don't have to be a person who struggles with the fear of failure day in and day out you might have off days you might have good days what we need to do is anchor ourselves into what grace says and grace says because i'm completely accepted by god i desire to do the right thing I am justified by Christ. I am just as if I never sinned. What standard do I have to meet in order to have value? None. I've been deemed valuable by God. He's met the standard. Do me a favor. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes real quick here in the house and at home as well? And I want to pray for you right now. Father, I just lift up every person who is in earshot viewing this message or listening, God. And I just pray, Father, that these words would just reverb in our hearts as we leave this week, Father, that these words would just reverb in our hearts. Father, that we will be able to rewrite the script in our lives, Father, that we would be okay and relax in the fact that we have been justified, that the perfect place for us is at your feet, God. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have set us right. We have been set just as if we had never sinned. That sin is no longer our master, for we're under your grace. Father, we thank you for that. We bless you. In Jesus' name, 
everybody said amen and amen amen thank you guys for hanging out with us in the building tonight and thank you so much to everybody who tuned in online via facebook and youtube we will see you next week same time